transfer of power to central bankers canned, coalition forced to move, and Argentina demonstrates neoliberal descent into fascism. Coming up on this week's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 29th of February 2024 on a leap year. A very rare occasion that this is filmed on a leap year. It's the first time ever, I think. Yeah. Out of over 700 episodes. So, uh, special day. We've got good news. Uh, I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me is Craig Isherwood, Citizens Party leader and founder. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we're going to be discussing um, news from Canberra. We've got people on the ground there and a historic occasion where we are almost ready to declare victory on defeating the removal of the Section 11 power, which gives the government power to tell the Reserve Bank what to do in you know, a critical situation if it comes to a, a conflict between the two. Yeah. Um, so we're very close to that. Uh, and then stay tuned. We're going to discuss an example um, being Argentina of what happens when you let the economists dictate uh, what happens yeah, the in the nation. Yeah, the neoliberal economists like we've got suffering, we're suffering here. Yeah. Today as well. Uh, now, before we get into it, don't forget to hit the like button and make a comment below. Share this in any way you can, as widely as possible to get the word out. Uh, and subscribe, ring the notification bill. We put up a, a video a couple of days ago, um, which we're going to play here again today, of Mr Albanese reacting to the threat of his bill not going through. And those updates will be, uh, you'll be alerted of that if you ring the bell. Uh, and you can also uh, see the box below to donate. Uh, we need people's support to keep these campaigns going. And another way you can help also is by uh, subscribing to our regular weekly Australian Alert Service uh, where we produce all this material in depth. It'll be, it's very, very important. It's, it's a subject close to my heart, Elisa, because I take in the money and you spend the, the money. I do the books. So, <laughs> and I know that we've just heard that there's another hearing coming up in Bribey yeah. Island. Mm. So Robbie so will be Tom going Tom Price there. and then Bribey Island Yeah, look at Robbie's going to go to Tom Price, which is out in the middle of Whoop Whoop, if you say, and then come back in, eight, that's in March, next month, mm. uh, yeah, starting next month. And then back to Bribey Island in Queensland. So, I mean, he's, he's going to be literally clocking up the frequent flyer points mm. to, um, you know, to represent. And look, these are incredibly important to be on the ground here. We get yeah. to talk to not just the senators, but their staffers. We were able to update them, briefing, mm. brief them. I mean, the these, well, these senators are very busy. Yeah. And for us to have the opportunity to be there on the ground, say, look, did you realise this? Well, mm -hmm. this has just happened. How about this? then they get fully informed in mm. a way that, you know, you can't necessarily get access to them when they're in Parliament. Yeah, and at last week's Kingston hearing, I mean, Robbie organised some of the witnesses <laughs> that hadn't previously been arranged to come along, yeah. uh, the people from Cooter. So Cooter our role Pete. on the ground is really important. Mm. It's, not, it's not a cheap thing. And, you know, Matt Canavan, the Senate's uh, committee leader, you know, thanked us for our involvement and did recognise the fact that we are paying every expense in being at these... Uh, at these hearings, and look, it's what we do. Mm. We're there to represent the viewers, the people that support us, our membership, you know, in order to make sure that our ideas, the ones that you support, are put forward to the leadership of our country. Mm. That's what you're funding. So yep. donations are not just, you know, uh, going to go into the, the, the ether. They just 
they're used to literally fund our campaign work. Mm. So we'll now give you some of the runs on the board from yep. that work. Yep. Um, in our first topic, transfer of power to central bankers canned, coalition forced to move. Um, so, of course, we are talking about um, the legislation, the RBA reforms bill that Mr Chalmers is pushing and, of course, Albanese as well, um, to try to get through. It's all meant to be, these reforms are meant to be in place by the 1st of July this year, but they are hitting roadblock after roadblock. Uh, of course, there was a committee inquiry announced at the end of last year into this uh, matter because particularly the Greens had expressed concern about... A no there's a number of elements, of course, we've documented extensively um, that we don't like and others don't like about this legislation. But the first and foremost issue was recommendation number one, which was to take away... A what some have described as a reserve power, it can only be used, it's quite difficult and onerous to use, it can only be used in an emergency uh, situation where um, the economic crisis perhaps dictates um, that the government can overrule or override the Reserve Bank decision-making on monetary policy. And, of course, you've got the blame for that, Elisa, because of your oh. submission that you put into the <laughs> Senate inquiry because this issue was never raised in any paper except... Uh, the fact that we highlighted or you highlighted this issue or part of this issue in our submission to mm. this committee. It's interesting that not one other submitted, not one submission to this committee mm. recommended the removal of Section 11, yet it was the first recommendation that the, uh, yeah. that the committee came out with. And that's what raised a lot of questions. Where did this thing come from? Absolutely. Um, we're going to you know, show some of the highlights from the hearings in a moment um, with videos that will intersect that big, big question um, and which really brought things to a head. That hearing last Thursday, and that was happening as we were taping the show last week, mm -hmm. which we knew would be most interesting, um, but that really brought to a head the... Um, and we'd already, as we reported last week, we'd already heard whispers that the coalition were thinking about opposing this legislation um, and we were hoping, holding out hope that that would indeed be the case. But that hearing absolutely sealed the deal, um, that hearing of the Senate Economics Committee. Uh, and so what I want to do is show um, first, before we get to the committee hearing, uh, a video of question time uh, two days ago of the Prime Minister, Mr Albanese, reacting to a question from the Greens MP Max Chandler Mather uh, where he laid out what happened in that hearing and said, you know, um, what do you have to say about this reaction to your bill? And um, look, this is an absolute little foot stomp from Mr Albanese because um, the opposition had agreed with the government all along over an entire year that they would rubber stamp this because that's part of the bipartisan consensus on neoliberalism. You know, both major parties have signed up since 1983 to deregulation, privatisation, you know, stripping the real economy of any powers of government to actually intervene for the benefit and the common good of the people. Um, and therefore, because the shadow treasurer, Angus Taylor, uh, and the coalition as a whole has suddenly withdrawn their support for this, Elbow ain't happy. <laughs> so let's roll that clip.
And I give the call to the member for Griffith. Question to the Prime Minister. Since the Reserve Bank review, the Greens have opposed the government's proposal to remove its power to protect renters and mortgage holders from unreasonable interest rate rises. Former Prime Minister Keating and two former RBA governors have publicly agreed with us that big political decisions like interest rate rises require political accountability. Will, admit, will you admit your government was wrong to try and give up its power to overrule unreasonable interest rate increases and back the Greens' change to the bill? Order. Order. Prime Minister has the call. What's surprising here isn't that the Greens political party have that position. It's that the Liberal Party, or well. some of them, are saying that they'll back you on that as well. We'll see what happens in the Senate. But we had an RBA review, and the government's response is all about reinforcing the independence of the Reserve Bank. The independence of the Reserve Bank to deal... Order. The member for Hume... ..to deal with monetary policy and the government's responsibility through the budget to deal with fiscal policy. And we won't want them, of course, to work together, which is what uh, we have been doing, which is why we produced the first budget surplus in 15 years. Now, Senator Order. McKim has shown through his sniping from the sidelines that he knows nothing about how the RBA functions and he doesn't understand the review. And he has found a kindred spirit in the Shadow Treasurer. The Shadow Treasurer uh, was consulted Order. by the Treasurer for more than a year. And he has never mentioned once, once, any proposal to override power as a concern. Uh, this only shows that it's all about political posturing and opportunism and not considered... The member for Hume is going to cease interjecting for the remainder of this answer or to be warned. Not a considered view about the policy. Uh, what is clear is that the Shadow Treasurer not only cannot get a question to the Treasurer in question time, he has no authority amongst his colleagues who are trying to go down a populist route. Now, uh, the Treasurer has done his best uh, to be bipartisan, Remember for reasonable. Groom, we'll see the light shines upon the member for Groom, Mr Speaker, but it doesn't make him any brighter. <laughs> um, Mr Speaker... Order. Order. Mr Speaker... Order. Members on my left... Just going to ask, just, just going to ask the prime minister, just the member for Barker. Just going to ask the the prime minister to withdraw that comment. I, I withdraw, Mr. Speaker, to assist the house. Um, Order. Uh, Senator Hume has said this, which I, is beyond my comprehension. Uh, in fact, Order. in fact, it keeps the RBA Order. more independent if the government can override them. <laughs> That's the position of their shadow minister in the other place. They want to side with the Greens. You can wear it. You can wear it because we expect economic irresponsibility from them, but we expect a little bit better from mainstream political parties. So Elbow has outed himself as a full-scale neoliberal here, and I'll say that Chalmers had a little 
cry about it too on ABC Radio National this morning because he also said, you know, I was talking to Angus Taylor about this for a year, about removing this override power, and he never objected to it, not once. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, so um, now, uh, and of course, look, the coalition, why is the coalition responding to this? It's not because they're great people or something, but from the um, inception of this inquiry at the end of last year, the inquiry and politicians all over the country, thanks to you, our supporters, thanks to other people we've worked with and their networks have let loose on these politicians. This is the last straw. You're going to take away any government power. The RBA has smashed Australians. Yeah. Look at people holding mortgages. Yeah. And now you're going to say we're going to mo- take away the government's final say that they would only use in the most extreme of circumstances and get rid of it, scrap it? Well, they're going to use it. Look, if you had a government that was representing the general welfare of the population and not the interests of the private bankers, that wasn't operating from this consensus playbook of neoliberalism, which is, look, neoliberalism goes back to the old liberalism of the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, which was basically the British East India Company, mm-hmm. slave trading and opium war pushing philosophies or economic yeah. policies. It also goes back to the policies of the Enlightenment, right, which meant that you didn't treat people as human beings. I mean, all this woke stuff would never possibly exist in the Enlightenment because people effectively were treated like animals. And yet this is why they could justify slave trading and drugging the population is because mm. this idea that human beings are more than animals, like our philosophy says that human beings are created in the image of the creator. We're endowed with creative reason, which is when educated, we can make incredible discoveries of the principles in the universe, use those principles, and we can put man on the moon, the, the back side of the moon, the, the south side of the moon, the cold side of the moon, or even on Mars. Right? But that idea is not in the neoliberals' thinking. So everything is contracted to simply profits mm-hmm. and control by large corporations. Uh, I've done a lot of work in the last few days, last few weeks on this, and it makes me sick to think the worst possible thing that's happened in our country is any criticism mm-hmm. of neoliberal policy, any breaking from the ranks, any idea that you can say, well, maybe the role of the government is to create policies for the people, is actually... And look, the Mott Pelerin Society we wrote about in 1996 was an institution that was brought that that's established a number of these think tanks, Centre for Independent Studies. Some of the biggest creeps in the world, like Friedrich von Hayek, were on their board. And these institutes are very sophisticated now. They've got journalists in it, and a lot of journalists they're primed to attack anyone, particularly mm. like us, that says, "Hang on a sec, what's the matter about talking about this idea that government can actually?" run the economy. The government can have control over the banks. Mm-hmm. And you get this knee-jerk reaction from economists that are trained in universities that have been brainwashed by this neoliberalism, like Jim Chalmers, mm. you know, who did his thesis on Paul Keating that was responsible for wrecking the Australian economy through the Campbell Report and the Martin Reports and so forth, that deregulated the banking system. Right, This guy is completely brainwashed in neoliberal economics. Mm-hmm. So no wonder he's spitting chips over the fact that his piece of legislation that says, no, 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 we've got to give complete free market to the banks to do what they want, hand over this entire control to central bankers, mm. right? 
is being resisted yeah. because there's a few people in the Liberal Party and in the Labor Party are saying, well, hang on a sec, that's not a good PR issue for us if the Citizens well, Party gets hold of it, yeah. and we did, and therefore we've caused yeah. a lot of problems for and, these guys. And no doubt the Labor people in the back of their mind are thinking, you know, we both signed up to this, we all agreed to this, and you're breaking from it in a move that's going to be more popular come the next election, and we're still sticking with the, the policy that's very unpopular, but, yep. you know, we all agreed to this, you can't break the deal, you know? Yeah, break the deal. Well, break the deal. You know, break the back of Chifley mm. and Curtin that brought this in. I mean, he had the door. You know, the, the the two most incredible prime ministers in our history. Mm. They brought this in because of exactly the problem of the Great Depression, whereby yeah. he had the private bankers dictating monetary policy to the elected government. Yeah. The elected government wanted to move on policies like creating uh, in or creating you know uh, funds for large scale public works and so forth, fiduciary credit at that particular time. And, and the Reserve, the, the, the Commonwealth Bank, under the controls of Sir Robert Gibson, says, no, we bloody well won't. Mm. We will not exercise the power of what you request because we are representing the private bankers, the Bank of England and so yeah. forth. Yeah. And that's why Curtin and Chifley brought this mm. in in the 40s uh, in order to protect the, that power. And it's never been used, but it's there and it can, can keep the RBA very honest. Mm. And, you know, that's why it was so interesting that in this hearing last Thursday, and I felt almost uncomfortable agreeing with, you know, some of these senior <laughs> figures like Peter Costello, like Bernie Fraser and McFarlane, you know, Reserve Bank heads that we would never be on the same side as. But even they, from a standpoint of having a little bit of distance from being in government, looking back, can see you can't give away government control and I want to come to some clips here and just to give a bit of a summary overview of the hearing um, the senators from all parties really hammered this issue as you mentioned before where did the and section 11 uh, this government power was at the top of their minds it dominated I'd say 85 to 90 percent of the hearing uh, and so one of the top questions that the senators kept coming back to was where did this proposal come from? And of course, no one knew. The only you know, clues came from the Reserve Bank Review panellists, the two of them that were there on the day, uh, who basically said, oh, it came up in discussions. They were very vague about it uh, until they were questioned in a bit more detail, which we'll come to. Um, but they did reveal the real um, necessity in their minds for it when they talked about, as we'll see, um, the threat of politicians going all populist, you know, going all rogue, so to speak, and, you know, demanding interest rates be kept under control or reflecting other um, popular concerns of the people. So they made clear that that was the real agenda. Um, and then you had these senior statesmen coming in, like Costello and others, saying, um, you know, you can't have the technocrats in control uh, you've got this cult of central banking. We can't allow that to dominate. And then discussing, as one of the senators, Liberal Senator Dean Smith, raised the fact that a lot of the RBA review panel's points were based on economic theory um, as opposed to lived experience, which tells something, as these senior statesmen made clear, quite different. And um, those statesmen and you know other leaders 
defending uh, the role of elected government. And the su supreme irony at the end of it all was that um, the question came back with every witness from a number of senators, well, if Section 11 was removed, how would you resolve a dispute between government and the RBA if it arose? And all of them had to admit in the end that you would have to re-legislate something very similar, if not equivalent, to Section 11 in that case. So why take it out, you know? Mm. So let's start with Peter Costello and the cult of central banking. And Costello prefaced what I'm, these clips I'm going to show here by saying when he was asked about where did Section 11 come from, and he talked about the fact that this, you know, in the networks of central banking, um, they're well aware of it and it comes up every now and again, particularly when there's questions about, oh, are we in line with international standards and rah, rah, rah. So he said this basically was an inquiry in search of a recommendation and at a certain point, you know, they <laughs> pulled open the bottom drawer and, oh, oh Section 11, okay, let's re recommend scrapping that. Um, but then he went on discussing how, um, you know, economists, of course, they're going to push for power, they want power, but the only reason that parliaments would give away that power is if they don't trust themselves. Does Parliament want to maintain some sovereignty in this area or not? I don't think it's really a matter for uh, central banking, to be frank. It's a matter for Parliament. Uh, and I would say to you, um, you'll, always, you'll always find economists will say Parliament should give up its power because they're economists. They believe they should have the power. Um, but I can only think that the Parliament give up its power if it doesn't trust itself. Uh, and I don't think that's a very good principle. I do think... You, you'll never hear this from central bankers, obviously, but they do have enormous powers. And if anything, I think I think they probably don't get enough scrutiny. This, this idea that we should remove them from all scrutiny—they're you know, they're, they're not infallible. They make mistakes. The idea of the infallibility of a, a central bank governor—you uh, know—we can't even criticise them. I've, I always said I think the press, because they've got such power, the press should be more robust in its criticism of them. I think that would be a good thing. And I actually think there wasn't enough criticism of, of what we call the unconventional monetary policy, which was the forward guidance and the bond line program. If there'd been a bit more, maybe we'd have got some, uh, some better decisions at that point. I, I actually think, <laughs> I'll probably go the other way, I think there should be a bit more scrutiny of the bank at the moment. Now whether that's done through the parliamentary committees, whether that's done through uh, the press. I, I think, you know, particularly with what I regard as the, the, the failure during the unconventional monetary policy, I think there should have been more scrutiny. I, you, you can't remove people from scrutiny um, uh, when they exercise such enormous powers. So I, 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 I would say this is where... You, Senators, this is where the House has got a responsibility and the press has got a responsibility. I think the press has got a responsibility because it tends to be this sort of cult of the central banker, never attack a central banker, it's a bad thing to do. I think the press has got to get much more inquiring here. All right, more scrutiny of central banks, brilliant. Now, Ian McFarlane, former head of the Reserve Bank himself, now talks about um, the restrictions on central bank independence. We have to recognise that central bank independence, a good thing as it is, 
and no one has promoted it as much as I have. But it's not God-given. It was delegated to the central banks by elected governments because they concluded it would lead to better decision-making. But conflicts can arise, usually small ones, but how would we resolve the situation if there was a really big one, a rare event so far? But at the end of the day, the elected government has to have priority if there was an issue was big enough. If the issue was big enough, uh, I think we have to accept the elected government is more important than the central bank. Okay, so governments have to have priority here, here. Now then, Bernie Fraser, another former head of the Reserve Bank, um, he discussed this idea of having a new monetary policy committee which would be dominated by basically technocrats. Uh, and this is where the question of technocrats and you know, expert economists versus lived experience comes in. So listen to what he had to say. Touched upon by, I think, some other witnesses, namely the creation of a separate monetary policy committee. It's not so much the separateness that worries me, but the concentration of monetary policy, monetary theory that's envisaged in respect to the committee to make the decisions on interest rates is very much organised around monetary policy and monetary theory. In other words, we're getting close to having a, a committee of super nerds on monetary theory and monetary policy making decisions on interest rates. And while inflation is very much a monetary phenomenon, the causes of inflation and the consequences of inflation go way beyond monetary theory and monetary policy. So. I think another witness touched upon the need to have a board making the decision and have people sitting around the board making those decisions that has a capacity to make judgments and inputs about all the other things that bear upon inflation quite apart from monetary conditions and demand. You know, we've learned very clearly in recent times about the supply problems, about productivity and competition in industry and all those kinds of things have very significant implications for inflation and I think those kinds of people should board, those kinds of skills should be represented around the table that's actually making the decisions on interest rates. All right, so now in these next bunch of clips, you'll see uh, the reference I made earlier to um, the Reserve Bank panellists talking about, um, and, and this, the lady here, Renee Fry McKibben, is an economist, um, and her sidekick, um, Gordon De Brewer, is from the Public Service. But um, they're talking about how the independence of the central bank has to be protected from populist politics. Uh, and um, also listen to what um, Renee says when they ask her, when the Senator Dean Smith asks her, you know, we've had all these people with a lot of experience speak against removing Section 11. Have you got anyone equally esteemed on your side? And again, all she can cite is a central banker. Well, the RBA is operationally independent. It's independent because 
you guys uh, allow them to be independent. That's, that's a political decision. Um, but you're in, they're independent um, because they have to make difficult decisions uh, and they need to be, um, I guess, protected from the short-run political process of, um, you know, populist politics and, you know, the RBA having to make hard decisions is, is hard sometimes and they need to be protected as well. So it's, it's clear in the evidence today that former governors, Mr Fraser and Mr McFarlane, former treasurer, Mr Costello, uh, third parties like the Australia Institute and ACOS, and then other independent submitters do not support removing Section 11. For our benefit, can you identify for us some equally esteemed people that support the removal of Section 11? Well, Andy Levin, who wrote, who was a professor from the US, wrote an in-depth um, paper on this for us. Um, we accepted that part of his recommendation. We didn't accept all of his recommendations. Um, but I mean, there's a lot of academic work uh, that looking at the period of the inflation shocks in the 70s um, that looked at the uh, role of the independence of a central bank in um, inflation outcomes, and they found that the more independent a central bank is, the better inflation outcomes are. So I suppose for me, I suppose for me as a, a lay person, what I'm seeing is a clear delineation between those with lived experience and and you've identified an academic. Can you identify? Can you so? Can you can you identify uh, someone with a perhaps a more practical lived experience uh, who supports the recommendation in regards to uh, removing Section 11? So um, Professor Levin was um, a member of the um, the US federal system for a long period of time. So that's where he came out. And probably the, the reveals, uh, it's the revealed preferences of the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank Senator. They're both, they're both major central banks that don't have an override power. And that's, that's specifically to ensure their independence. Uh, sorry, Thank you. Under, under difficult and stressful circumstances. Uh, now, that question of the populist, um, an executive government becoming all populist comes up again in this last uh, couple of clips that I want to play, where Senator McKim, at the start here, he has an excellent roundup of the proceedings, um, and you'll see the response. The RBA didn't ask for it. That was uh, Ms. Bullock has made that clear uh, in Senate estimates last week. The RBA did not ask for this power to be removed. The current governor has said that she's agnostic about it and also said that the RBA has as much independence as it needs to do its job. You've got now two former governors of the RBA saying not only should it not be removed but that actually removing it would compromise the independence of the RBA. You've got two of the highest profile former treasurers of the last generations, Mr Costello and Mr Keating, both now publicly opposing the removal of Section 11. Do you still think it's a good idea? Uh, yes, Senator. Uh, but right. my personal view would be, as panel member, yes, I think I'm balanced. And for the reasons I went through earlier, uh, I, I, just, just as an observation, the 
there's, there's a, always a high contestability around monetary policy decisions. So I don't think it's the end of the world. So keeping Section 11 is, is, not gonna, is not the end of the world. Removing it is not a global panacea. It's not going to not solve everything. But what it does do is it, it shifts the focus of every time the, the central bank is making a hard decision from contesting that decision from executive decision-making within government as opposed to the parliament. And where you concentrate that always being it's then the executive government has to, has to make that decision every time there's a contestable uh, choice or decision by the central bank. You, you bring that, and that's where that debate is now gone, you bring that, that form of the debate very directly, uh, you, make it, you make it an issue for every, every interest rate decision. Most, most decisions by central banks on interest rates are right but almost all of them are very hard. And you've got a highly contested political environment and that just makes it harder, actually, for the central bank and, and, for, and for executive government. We're not, we're not removing the right and power of parliament to override. We're not recommending that. We can't anyway, but that would be something we would vehemently object to. But actually putting it always directly into the confrontation between or a confrontation between executive government and the central bank is not healthy. The government is the executive. What happens to you if you have a populist executive who wants to then every every interest rate decision override that interest rate decision because it's not it's not politically convenient. By keeping section eleven you, you bring that that exercise of uh, populist power into the executive rather than the parliament. Well, uh, my, my response to that would be that they are accountable to the people in a way that the board of the RBA is not. Okay, so yep, he closed it off nicely with this fact that look, you know, the government is elected. You that's know, to go to the polls to the people. Yep, that's right. And that, if you want to call it populist, call it populist. But there's times, particularly in crisis, where governments have to respond to the people mm. that elect who elected them. Mm -hmm. um, so. You want to write that out of all of Australia's legislation? We've well, got a dictatorship, haven't that, we? Exactly right. Um, now, the Liberal Party, the Coalition, has heard that point loud and clear, and that's the only reason they're saying they will oppose this legislation. Now, of course, we are yet to see backroom deals, sneaking things through. Um, it looks at least certain that even if the legislation goes through, it likely won't have that Section 11 bit in it. There are other parts of the bill, like the removal of Section 36, which gives the Reserve Bank the power to control the lending policies of banks that could prevent inflating housing bubbles and such like, mm -hmm. and also the removal of the RBA's objective of being beholden to the general welfare of the people of Australia, just to focus on employment and inflation and make it an overarching objective instead. So there's other things in there that should also be removed and even other things on Monetary Policy Board with concentration of external advisers on that board, etc., um, that are not good. But at least if Section 11 is removed in itself, that's good. Maybe the government will scrap the whole thing because the Reserve Bank uh, panel, when it put out its recommendations, did say if... There's no bipartisan support for this. We recommend you don't take a legislative approach to making these changes, but basically do it ad hoc behind the scenes. So I would not be surprised if the Albanese government just pulled it 
mm. and went about it in other ways, um, which they can do. One of the biggest issues behind the scenes here, underneath all of this, is the axiom that government should have any should not be any sort of power in the economy whatsoever. Right, nation states should not exist. Mm. This idea of sovereignty should not exist. This is what's underneath underpinning neoliberal policy. And that's what's starting to be, we're starting to find a reaction against in the population because people are being screwed by the interest rate rises. There was no necessity to do that. Mm. But under neoliberal policies, you know, you've got to protect the banking system and you've got to do that which protects corporations. And all, this is the underpinning, the, the axioms of neoliberalism. So when we talk about neoliberalism, we're not talking about the common good or the general welfare ideas that were embraced by old Labor, mm. which brought these powers like Section 11 and 36 in, where governments could act in the general welfare and the general interest of the population. You're talking about a, uh, a series of axioms, a series of... Uh, very strong beliefs that government should have no role in the economy. It should be completely free market. It should be just laissez-faire at strongest you know, survival of the fittest economically and so mm, forth. Mm. That's what we're talking about here. Yeah, well, read this pamphlet if you want to know more about that because that's when liberalism was reinvented as neoliberalism, one of the first places it was tried out was under Mussolini in Italy. Mm. And, you know, people, when he first made his name on the stage, um, he was a strong man that said, you know, we've got debt, we've got problems, we've got this, we've got that. Uh, this is the approach to deal with it. We have to be hard-handed and we have to, you know, go with what they called at that time, which one of his advisors had written about, pure economics, you know. So the balance sheet is the bottom line. Forget what happens to the people. At least we'll get out of debt. At yeah. least we'll, you know be um, viewed well in the eyes of the big banks that won't lend us money otherwise, right? So there's all those um, threats hanging over them. Um, but in Canberra this week, what we found, and uh, Robbie uh, Barwick is there with Glenn Isherwood, and we wanted to give a, just a very quick update, but they can give um, oh, a greater sense week. of that next week. Um, what we found in Canberra was that... Um, all of this that we just described, that you just went through, is on the nose because the crisis is hitting the population. The population are mobilising and they're not just getting out there with banners and waving flags or something. They've got ideas and solutions to orient to, which we and our collaborators are providing. Uh, and one of those ideas, which um, we have had discussions about in Canberra this week, uh, is our idea, starting with a postal bank, of actually um, utilising the power of government to invest in the areas of the economy that need it to get the economy actually flourishing and moving and put people back to work, um, you know, resolving the issue at the same time with postal banking of reviving the regional and rural communities that are dying when the last bank leaves town. And we got, you know a great advance, a great motion towards getting the legislation for our postal bank uh, tabled in Parliament. And, you know, you come out as a politician and vote against that, you see what you're going to cop. Yep. Um, <laughs> the spirit of the times is moving in the direction that we have made very, very clear and we've got a force out there that will fight for it. Yeah, the Citizens Party, Elisa, we're not just reactionary, right? People say, oh, you're reacting to this, what's going on. No, it's the opposite. 
we're putting in place policies that have a that, that that have a proof of principle in depth. You know, the whole idea of a post office bank is based upon the original idea of the Commonwealth Bank, which was started in post offices. We're using the footprint that they that it used to become the most powerful and successful bank that protected Australia over decades. We're going to bring that back. Mm. Bring that back. It should never have been. It should never have been sold off. But in the, in the 80s and 90s, we came under this massive attack in this country through the likes of Montpellier and Society. They established all these new think tanks. There was a whole new raft of neoliberal thinking. People said, oh, this is great. This, is, this, must, this must work. But it was an experiment. Mm. It was a neoliberal experiment that put people last. And now, look, just go and have a look at your power bill. They were supposed to be much, mm. much lower than they are now. In fact, it's completely the opposite. The privatisation yep. of electricity has blown up in people's faces, mm. but that's the nature of privatisation. When you privatise or take out basic necessary economic infrastructure from the role of government, which can use its powers mm. right, to make sure that the, 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 the infrastructure is efficient and so forth and not under subject to all sorts of competition rules, which it is now, that when you take that out of the economy, you destroy the economy by making basic economic infrastructure, too expensive. And that's what we're looking at with gas prices. Mm. And we should have the cheapest gas in the world. No, we've got the most expensive. We should have cheap electricity. Mm. No, we've got the most expensive. Mm. Right, yeah. so the problem here is uh, the neo neoliberal ideology, this free trade, I call it slave trade and opium dope pushing trade philosophy, uh, is what underpins the, the, the economics today. And most economists wouldn't even realise that because mm. they go with the university stuff. It starts at a certain level, mm. but they don't go and have a look and say, where did this really come from? Yeah, that's right. But it's failed as a body of, um, of thought. It has actually failed, and that's being recognised across the world. And I want to come to our next topic now because this yeah. gets into an, a living example happening as we speak. Um, Argentina demonstrates neoliberal descent into fascism. So it might seem a paradox to some people that the new Argentine president, Javier Millet, who prides himself on standing for freedom, I mean, he's a libertarian, and yet his he's forced in holding up those beliefs to literally descend into fascism. And I'll, I'll give a bit of a sense of what I mean by that, but just to preface it, uh, so Javier Millet, and he is a politician with an economics degree and master's degrees. Um, he's a devo devotee of people like Friedrich von Hayek, from a founder of the Montpellier Society that who you mentioned earlier. Um, and he's an advocate of dollar, de, uh, dollarising the Argentine economy. In other words, replacing their local currency, the peso, with the dollar. So talk about scrapping sovereignty. But a... Um, uh, a vibrant advocate of deregulation, privatisation and savage austerity measures to, as I said earlier, get the budget bottom line in hand, um, stop hyperinflation, all of these things that, as you said, as with the example yeah. of deregulation of electricity, doesn't actually work and it's not working here. We'll give you the figures um, but just to preface it, Javier Malay uh, took office on the 10th of December and then between the 20th and the 27th of December, he introduced two pieces of legislation um, which gave him would, would give him unprecedented power. On the 20th of December, he announced the Urgency and Necessity Decree. And then on the 27th of December, an omnibus bill called Bases and Starting Points 
law for freedom of Argentines. And he described this as shock policy or shock therapy, um, which is exactly the policy that destroyed Argentina under the International Monetary Fund, where the IMF would come in and say, we'll lend you money because you absolutely desperately need it, but only if you cut what you're spending on health, cut what you're spending on social services, cut everything, which crushed the economies. And, yeah, deregulate, privatise, etc. Now, the decree policy overturns 30 laws that include social protections, regulation of trade, protection of consumers and workers, and control of the prices of basic goods, including food, health insurance and rents. It also dictates that all public sector companies will be privatised And that means everything, state airlines, public media, companies that run the country's nuclear reactors, that build satellites, that run scientific work, medical work, uh, the state-run bank founded in 1891, the state oil company, uh, ports, railroads, energy companies and public labs. Now, um, the second bill, the Omnibus Bill, has 664 articles and demands that Congress declare a public emergency in every single sector of the government structure for the purpose of removing those sectors from state control. And that includes economic, financial, fiscal and social security policy, national defence, tariff, energy, sanitation, administrative policy and labour policy. Um, One of the things that it does is criminalise all protests with lengthy jail terms And it goes as far as to say that any gathering of three people in a public place is considered a demonstration. And so if you don't have permission 48 hours in advance from the Ministry of Security, it's illegal. So much for libertarianism. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, fortunately, earlier this month, Millet failed to secure the votes to pass that omnibus bill and it was sent back to committee. So, you know, he still has to get this stuff through Parliament because we still haven't made the decisions that we've just forestalled here in Australia, fortunately, to give away all these powers completely. But as I said earlier, Mussolini started off in the same way. Mm. You know, he was elected and they got things through Parliament. Then at a certain point, they said that the emergency was such that they had to seize power. And again, with Nazi Germany, emergency decrees get enacted uh, outside of parliamentary procedure. But I wanted to give a bit of a uh, sense of what has happened in just some of the figures that have been coming out in recent days and weeks. These are figures um, of the decline in the economy since Malay was elected on the 10th of December. So poverty has increased by over 10%. So the January figure saw poverty at 57.4%, up from 44.7% at the end of last year. The number of Argentinians that are destitute were at 15% in January, up from 9.6% at the end of 2023. That's 15% of the entire population, not 15% of a substrate, but no, the entire yeah. population. So that's Argentinian citizens yeah. absolutely destitute. The food price, you know, this, is, this explains why, the food price is up 300% since he took office. And, of course, his solutions were meant to, you know, stop all of that happening. Uh, the peso has been devalued 50% against the dollar so far. Um, and again, he's just using that as the excuse to de-dollar, to dollarise. I found that very interesting, Lisa, because Lyndon LaRouche, you know, statesman and physical economist Lyndon LaRouche, who we've been associated with for many years, of course he died in 2019, he made some comments about this exact process of you know, dollarising people's um, uh, country's peso. 
uh, uh, currency. He made the point uh, when the Ecuadorian government was looking at doing this, I don't know whether they did or not, I haven't been able to find out um, whether that in fact took place, but he basically called it slavery mm. and genocide of the, the nation state because you're giving away your pure sovereignty. Mm. Now the same econom economist that was advising the Ecuadorian government is now advising Malay. Mm. So the point is that this represents the, you know, the it will represent actual genocide for the people of Argentina. And I find it staggering that a country like Argentina, that used to be one of the wealthiest countries in South America, has now become down to this. Yeah. And what I was, it rings the alarm bells in my mind very easily. If it can happen to Argentina, oh, yeah. it can happen in Australia. Our economy is often being compared to Argentina. And that's the problem. And look, the difference, though, is us as a political party representing alternative solutions and saying, getting people to say, look, wake up, look at history, look how you can actually solve these problems by policies other than these neoliberal Montpelier and society policies of slavery and you know, free trade and everything like mm. that. Now, additionally, um, interest rates have gone up to 133%. Inflation for January is up to 254% per year. Of course, that means wages and pensions, you know, won't get you anywhere, won't buy you anything. Um, and, it, and this is before a lot of... So that inflation is before a lot of the deregulation because in early March, the government is set to deregulate water, electricity and gas. And as you showed in Australia, uh, that's not going to put the prices down um, because they're giving power to... Well, um, we, on an earlier show, Citizens Report show, we featured... Uh, the video of Malay talking to the World Economic Forum where he spoke in defence of monopolies. And that's what you have concentrating their power when you deregulate. And that's what you get. Um, now, the Ministry of Human Capital has cut off deliveries to food kitchens, the provision of cancer drugs to hospitals. Uh, these are things that are uh, really impacting people in the last week's and strikes are therefore growing. So there was a strike, big strike on the 24th of January. There were more in February and there are many more planned. There's also a big backlash from numerous governors of the various provinces, one of which is threatening to cut off um, deliveries of oil and gas because the federal government has stopped sending money from the federal budget that is usually allocated to the provinces. So... You know, by him saying they're a very big state for production of oil and gas, by him cutting that off, it's going to have huge consequences as well. Um, and I was going to add to this, you know, look at the protests taking place all over Europe, Europe yeah. which are growing by the day, and not just a protest against these kind of neoliberal policies, but um, against another variety or flavour of those policies, which are green reforms where they're trying to... Um, impose upon farmers in particular things in the name of the environment that are crushing them as well. Mm. So you've got a real explosion of um, dissent across the globe against these neoliberal policies. Yeah, exactly. I just want to come back to our history again because I think it's really an illustrative of uh, what was done in Victoria 
right? Because you had this Montpelier Society, which has set up these think tanks all around the world. There's about 550 of them now in 100 countries. In other words, they promote this neoliberal agenda, small government, you know, deregulate. Everything that you've just said that Millet is doing is what they recommend, except it's hidden. And it was deliberately hidden because that was their agenda. They said, we're going to set up all these societies around the world, but we're not going to talk about free market, uh, free trade or free market economics because that might cause a bit of a reaction. Well, they've been very successful in the sense of setting up these, these, um, uh, these institutes all around the world, but they've also been unsuccessful in the sense that the irony is that you know, Argentina was going to join the BRICS and it was going to be BRICS 11, but now it's BRICS 10. Mm. But a majority of countries around the world are now going with, or a lot, of, a lot of countries around the world see what's being done when you dollarize your economy or get mm. too close to the United States where the dollar is actually no longer being as uh, popular as it used to. But uh, So they're, they're going away from that en masse around the world. Now, here in Australia, we had an operation run against the Whitlam government, right, which was to stop us from owning our own resources. Right, we had, he had a policy of buy back the farm. The Montpelier Society back in the 70s, that was the first target here in Australia. And it was done through a guy by the name of Dr uh, Michael Porter, who was a member of the Montpelier Society. He was one of just 14 Australians that were members of the Montpelier Society. And he was a very close associate. He was uh, of Friedrich von Hayek personally. And he was part of um, the Central Policy Review Committee, a Whitlam think tank at the time. And what he said was that um, when Whitlam or any of his ministers came in, notably Rex O'Connor, when they would come into this committee with ideas, they would bring in these huge plans for water projects, rail policy proposals. But then Porter and the CPRC just trashed them and went with ours. We evaluated them, we stripped them and left them as empty bones. This crazy Connor plan of borrowing billions to buy back the farms, farm, so what? We scrapped a lot. Whitlam put them in the cupboard and we just stripped them to the bare bones. We, saw every we oversaw every policy proposal. So this is the neoliberal agenda back in the Whitlam era and that was back in the mm -hmm. 70s. And then you had an acceleration you had the establishment in 70, uh, 1976 of the Centre for Independent Studies right, by Greg Lindsay. They openly promote these policies. Go and look at their website. Mm. Look at the, they, 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 um, they praise von Hayek and all the neoliberal economists there. But see, that's not talked about because mm. it's not supposed to be. Mm. Anton Fisher and uh, a guy by the name of uh, Major Smedley that were in the Institute for Public Affairs in London, which was the premier Thatcher-like Thatcher think tank of the 1970s and 1980s, basically said that, we, like I said before, you can't talk about what we actually represent because it would be, and I was saying, a bit repulsive to the general population. Mm. Well, what you see coming out today is the, re the, um, the revolt against this neoliberal agenda. Yeah. But what is very important is that people know that this was a deliberate... This neoliberalism was not something that was always been part of Australian history. It was brought in in the mid-70s by this uh, uh, Montpelier Society crowd and it destroyed the type of economics that was being promoted by Curtin and Chifley. Yeah, no. Because, you know, look, go back and look at the post-war projects of Curtin and Chifley. The you know, Snowy Mountain Scheme was the only one that got built, but there was dozens of these. 
You go come forward to the 70s when Whitlam was proposing building regional cities and large-scale infrastructure projects. Rex Connor did a lot of good in, as the resources minister at the time, but the backlash was so great by the institutions that were being supported and run by the Montpelier Society and this, this neo, these neoliberal think tanks that after a while no one wanted to stick their head up and talk about policies, nation-building yeah. policies. That's so wrong. this is a long history. But, you know, the Citizens Party's been around since uh, you know, the 1980s. We were established in Baramba, in Kingaroy in the 1980s based upon the recognising that these sorts of policies were what's destroying our country. That's why Nolan, myself, and my, my wife and I and three other blokes, we set up the, the Citizens Electoral Council at that time specifically because we had to find a solution to this policy direction. Mm -hmm. And now, look, 36 years later... We have every, uh, particularly from your austerity um, pamphlet there, which people should ring in and get a copy of, we know how this organism smells. Mm. And it, ain't, it doesn't smell very good at all. Yeah. And we're very happy to talk to anyone, particularly politicians, our leadership about how you can get the smell out of the nostrils yep. <laughs> and actually build this country because it is foul. Yep. But the good news is that you know, we have solutions We've published them many times. We provide the alternative to what, unfortunately, these uh, Argentinians are now going through. Mm. We're not going to let our country get into that yep. state. We don't have to go that way, and we have the chance to do it now, and defeating this RBA reform bill can be the first um, victory in doing it. So stay tuned for more marching orders on what we want you to do. We'll see what happens in the next 24, 48 hours, and uh, next week we'll have more to say about it. Mm -hmm. Um, but we can win this one. So thanks for all your support in getting us this far. Thanks for tuning in. That's all we've got time for today. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. And see you again next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.